Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the McEwen Hall. My name's John Oberlander. I'm a professor in informatics at the university and a member of the Gifford Lectureship Committee. I'm standing in for Professor Sir Timothy O'Shea, who's the convener of the committee and the principal of the university. And he has, in fact, just arrived back in time to attend this meeting. So it gives me great pleasure this evening to introduce Professor Stephen Pinker to give his Gifford lecture on The Better Angels of Our Nature, A History of Violence and Humanity. Now, let me say a few words about Stephen Pinker. A native of Montreal, he received his BA from McGill University in 1976 and his PhD in psychology from Harvard in 1979. After serving on the faculties of Harvard and Stanford for a year each, he moved to MIT in 1982, where he spent 21 years before returning to Harvard in 2003 as the Johnson Family Professor of Psychology. Professor Pinker is a cognitive scientist who's carried out research on language and its connections to cognition, social relationships, child development, neural information processing, human evolution, and theories of human nature. This work has won many prizes, including the Trolland Award from the National Academy of Sciences, the Henry Dale Prize from the Royal Institution of Great Britain, the George Miller Prize from the Cognitive Neuroscience Society, and the Early Career Award and McCandless Prize from the American Psychological Association. Professor Pinker has also written a number of accessible books which synthesize large bodies of knowledge in cognitive science, evolutionary psychology and biology, and behavioral genetics. They paint a comprehensive picture of how the mind works, how it evolved, and how we ought to bring these ideas to bear on theories of politics and morality. The books have been translated into several dozen languages for a worldwide audience. They include The Language Instinct, How the Mind Works, Words and Rules, The Blank Slate, The Stuff of Thought, and most recently, The Better Angels of Our Nature. These books have been shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize, the Samuel Johnson Nonfiction Prize, and the Royal Society Science Book Prize. And they've won prizes from the Linguistic Society of America, the American Psychological Association, and the Foundation for the Future. Professor Pinker has also received four prizes for graduate and undergraduate teaching, including a Harvard College professorship, and has been named Humanist of the Year and listed amongst Prospect Magazine's world's top 100 public intellectuals and Time's 100 Most Influential People in the World Today. He is chair of the usage panel of the American Heritage Dictionary and also writes frequently in the popular press, including the New York Times, Time, Prospect, Slate, and the New Republic. His most recent book is The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, a challenging and rewarding read. The lecture this evening is being recorded and the video will be available on the Gifford website shortly. It's also being streamed live for those unable to get to the McEwen Hall tonight. I now have great pleasure in handing you over to Professor Stephen Pinker. Thank you very much. Thank you. Believe it or not, and I know most people do not, violence has been in decline for long stretches of time, and today we may be living in the most peaceful era in our species' existence. The decline of violence has not been steady, it has not brought rates of violence down to zero, 
and it is not guaranteed to continue. But I hope to persuade you that it is a persistent historical development, visible on scales from millennia to years, from wars and genocides to the treatment of children and animals. I'm going to walk you through six major historical declines of violence, try to identify their immediate causes, that is, particular historical events of the era, and then try to tie them together in terms of their ultimate causes, that is, general historical forces interacting with a constant human nature. The first decline of violence I call the pacification process. Until around 6,000 years ago, humans everywhere lived in anarchy without central government. What was life like in this state of nature? This is a question that thinkers have pondered literally for centuries. In 1651, Thomas Hobbes famously wrote that in a state of nature, the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A century later, Jean-Jacques Rousseau countered that nothing can be more gentle than man in his primitive state. Now, neither of these men uh, knew what they were talking about. They had no idea what life was like in a state of nature. But uh, today we can do better because there are two sources of evidence on rates of violence in non-state societies. The first is forensic archaeology. You can think of this as CSI Paleolithic. <laughs> Namely, what proportion of prehistoric skeletons have signs of violent trauma, like bashed-in skulls, decapitations, bones with arrowheads embedded in them, or mummies found with ropes around their necks. Um, I've found uh, 20 estimates from the archaeological literature, and as you can see, they span uh, quite a range. Uh, but they average out to 15%. Uh, that is, 15% of prehistoric skeletons have signs of violent trauma. We can compare that figure to those of some uh, more recent eras, such as the uh, Europe and the United States in the 20th century, which underwent two world wars, uh, whose rate of violent death was about uh, seven-tenths of one percent. If we aim for the largest uh, credible estimate for the 20th century, aggregating the deaths from uh, wars on the battlefield, the indirect deaths from starvation and disease in the wake of war, the uh, man-made famines, the genocides, we can push the rate up to about 3%. And if we look at, turn now to the 21st century, the bar is invisible. It is less than one pixel high uh, for a rate of three one-hundredths of a percent. The second rate of, uh, way of estimating rates of violence in non-state societies comes from ethnographic vital statistics. The wave of uh, farming and civilization and government that swept over the world beginning around 6,000 years ago left a few pockets of the world still in a state of anarchy, that is, a hunter-gatherer, hunter-horticulturalist, and other tribal societies. And ethnographers who've lived with them over long stretches of time have tabulated their rates of death from various causes, including warfare. Uh, I found 27 estimates from the... Um, uh, ethnographic literature, and once again, they span quite a range. Oops, I'm trying to get the pointer to, the software pointer to work here, which it is not working. Okay. Um, they, uh, I've plotted them on the conventional scale for measuring rates of violence, namely uh, deaths per 100,000 people per year, and um, as you can see, they 
Well, as you can't see, but as I will tell you. Uh, they span quite a range. Let me try one more time. Control, left click, mouse, not working. Ah, there we go. Okay. They span uh, quite a range uh, f uh, from zero to almost 1,500 war deaths per 100,000 per year, but they average out to 524 war deaths per 100,000 per year. That is, one half of 1% of the population uh, dies in warfare every year. Is that a high or a low figure? Once again, let's compare it to figures for uh, recent societies known for their violence, such as Germany in the 20th century with its two world wars, which comes out at a, at a rate of uh, 155. Russia in the 20th century, which had two, uh, went through two world wars and a civil war with a rate of about 140. Japan in the 20th century, which fought a world war that ended in not one but two nuclear strikes with a rate of 27. United States in the 20th century, two world wars and at least half a dozen other foreign wars with a rate of uh, 2.7. The largest credible estimate for the world as a whole in the 20th century, again aggregating deaths from war, genocide, and man-made famines, comes out at a rate of 60. And the world in the 21st century uh, is represented by an invisible graph that's less than one pixel high. So not to put too fine a point on it, but when it comes to life in a state of nature, Hobbes was right, Rousseau was wrong. Uh, the immediate cause was the rise and expansion of states and empires, giving rise to the various paxes that history students learn about, the Pax Romana, Pax Islamica, Pax Hispanica, uh, and so on. When a uh, ruler consolidates control over a territory, one of the first things that he starts, tries to do is to stamp out uh, tribal raiding and feuding, not because uh, these forms of tribal warfare uh, are, uh, um, hurt the interests of the citizens of the empire and that the emperor has a benevolent interest in their welfare, but rather because tribal raiding and feuding are a nuisance to the imperial overlords who just as soon keep the people alive to supply them with soldiers and, and uh, taxes and sla slaves. So just as a farmer has an interest in preventing his livestock from killing each other, uh, he has no interest in their disputes and it's just a dead loss to him, the early kings and emperors tried to uh, get rid of the tribal warfare that racked their kingdoms. The second decline of violence can be appreciated by examining this woodcut showing a uh, day in the life in the Middle Ages. And the process that brought this mayhem under control has been called the civilizing process. In many parts of Europe, most notably England, homicide statistics go back literally 800 years and historical criminologists such as Manuel Eisner at the University of Cambridge have plotted them over time. I've reproduced one of his graphs here. It's plotted on a logarithmic scale that runs from uh, a tenth of a homicide per 100,000 per year to one to 10 to 100. It runs from the year 1200 to, to the uh, present. And as you can see, there's been a massive decline in the rate of homicide in England. So the contemporary Englishman has about 1 35th the chance of being murdered as his medieval ancestor. This is true not just in England, but in every area for which we have comparable data. This graph shows the uh, results for um, Italy, uh, Netherlands, Germany and Switzerland, and Scandinavia. 
Here we have uh, the average of those five regions. And for the sake of comparison, I've also plotted the uh, 524 per 100,000 figure for non-state societies. This gap I've called the pacification process. This further decline, the civilizing process. I took the uh, name from a classic book by the German sociologist Norbert Elias, who argued that in the transition from the Middle Ages to modernity, <clears throat> there was a consolidation of central states and kingdoms out of the feudal patchwork of baronies and principalities and duchies. With it, criminal justice was nationalized, and the constant feuding and brigandage and warlording of medieval knights gave way to the king's justice. Also, during this transition, there was a growing infrastructure of commerce. There were uh, financial instruments like money and contracts that could be recognized within the borders of the newly consolidated states. And there were improvements to the physical infrastructure of commerce, such as uh, better, uh, better uh, carts and uh, roads and instruments of timekeeping. As a result, zero-sum plunder began to give way to positive-sum trade. And that's a theme that I'll return to at the end of the lecture. The third decline of violence can be appreciated when we recall some of the ways that the early kingdoms kept law and order within their boundaries. That is, brutal forms of uh, torture and execution, including breaking on the wheel, burning at the stake, clawing with iron hooks, sawing in half, and impalement. Uh, but in a development that has been called the humanitarian revolution, uh, country after country abolished these uh, forms of grisly punishment in a uh, wave of abolitions centered in the second half of the 18th century, uh, including the famous uh, prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. Pardon me. Let's see if I can get the hang of this. Nope. One more time. Uh, the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment in the Eighth Amendment of the American Constitution, borrowing a phrase from the English uh, Bill of Rights uh, almost a century before. Also abolished during this era was the profligate use of the death penalty for non-lethal crimes. In 18th century England, there were 222 capital offenses on the law books, uh, including poaching, counterfeiting, robbing a rabbit warren, being in the company of gypsies, and strong evidence of malice in a child aged 7 to 14 years of age. Uh, by 1861, the number of capital crimes had been reduced to four. Likewise, in 17th and 18th century America, the death penalty was used for theft, sodomy, bestiality, adultery, witchcraft, concealing birth, slave revolt, and counterfeiting. In fact, in the United States, uh, a, in the 17th century, a majority of the executions were for crimes other than murder. More recently, the only executions that have taken place are for murder or conspiracy to commit murder. The death penalty itself, of course, has been abolished in every Western democracy uh, but the United States. The red line on the graph shows the number of European countries that uh, have capital punishment. Uh, it shows that from 1775 to the present, it shows that most of the abolitions actually took place in the second half of the 20th century. But the blue timeline, which shows the number of European countries that have actually executed people, shows that well before politicians got around to striking capital punishment from the law books, their countrymen had lost their taste for putting people to death. And on average, 50 years elapsed between the 
last actual execution in a European country and the time when it was uh, stricken from the law books. Uh, now, I mentioned that the United States is an exception to this trend, or more accurately, 33 of the 50 states are exceptions and still having capital punishment. But even in the United States, capital punishment is a shadow of its former self, as this graph, which plots the per capita rate of execution in the United States from 1625 to the present, uh, shows. Uh, nowadays, in the United States, approximately 40 people are executed every year in a country that has more than 16,000 homicides every year. Also abolished during the humanitarian revolution were witch hunts, religious persecution, such as burning heretics at the stake, dueling among men of honor, blood sports, debtors' prisons, and most famously of all, slavery. Slavery used to be legal everywhere on earth. No one seemed to think there was anything particularly wrong with it. The, the Bible had no problem with uh, slavery. Democratic Athens was a slaveholding society. But starting in the second half of the 18th century, a uh, trickle of countries started to abolish slavery, which turned into a wave that eventually swept over the entire planet, uh, culminating in 1980, when Mauritania became the last country on earth to abolish slavery as a legal institution, which means that for 30 years we've been living through uh, a, the first time in history in which slavery has not been legal anywhere on earth. What were the immediate causes of the humanitarian revolution? One might guess that uh, the main cause would be increasing affluence. The world got richer, people's lives became more pleasant, perhaps people put a higher value on their own lives and by extension on life in general. Unfortunately, the timing doesn't work because economic historians tell us that, the, uh, that for hundreds of years, there was pretty much no economic growth, no average improvement in the well-being of citizens. That it was only with the advent of the Industrial Revolution beginning at the, in the 19th century that one saw any increase in standards of living. But most of these, the reforms that I refer to took place at least a century earlier in the 18th century. Uh, I think a more plausible antecedent cause was the rise of printing and, liter and literacy. This graph shows that there was a 25-fold increase in the economic efficiency of manufacturing a book prior to the 18th century, a kind of early version of Moore's Law. Um, here we see that this in increase in uh, efficiency was put into practice, and during the 18th century, there was a, an exponential increase in the number of books published per decade in uh, England. And for the first time in history, during the 18th century, a majority of Europeans could read those books. This is when literacy rose and stayed ab above the 50% level. Why should literacy matter? Well, there's a another name for the era of the humanitarian revolution. We also call it the Enlightenment. I think uh, citizens of Edinburgh in particular are uh, aware of this development, since most of it, a lot of it took place here. Uh, it was the era in which knowledge began to replace superstition and ignorance. And it's not implausible that as a populace becomes more literate and better educated, they're less likely to believe in uh, nonsense such as that Jews poison the wells, heretics go to hell, crop failures are caused by spells cast by witches, children are possessed by the devil which has to be beaten out of them, Africans are brutish and fit only for slavery, and so on. As Voltaire said during this era, uh, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Also, 
uh, literacy is a technology of cosmopolitanism, of the mixing of peoples and ideas. And it's plausible that as people consume more fiction and drama and history and journalism, they start to uh, inhabit other people's minds. They uh, imagine what life is like uh, among people unlike themselves. And conceivably, that could expand their circle of empathy and decrease their uh, taste for cruelty as a result of them being less likely to dehumanize people unlike themselves. That, too, is a theme that I'll return to at the end of the lecture. The fourth decline of violence um, has been called the long piece, and it speaks to the frequently made assertion that the 20th century was the most violent in history. However, no one who makes this claim ever looks at centuries other than the 20th. So this is a, uh, an alleged trend based on one data point. Uh, and there are many reasons to doubt that it's true. Uh, even if one looks only at the 19th century, which is often held to be a more peaceful era than the 20th century, one discovers episodes of mass bloodletting, such as the Napoleonic Wars, which uh, killed four million people, the uh, Taiping Rebellion in China, the most destructive civil war in history, which killed 20 million, the most uh, lethal war in American history, namely the American Civil War, which with 650,000 deaths, in Africa, the conquests of Shaka Zulu have been estimated to kill between one and two million people. Uh, turning to South America, we find the most proportionally destructive interstate war in history, the War of the Triple Alliance, which killed 60% of the population of Paraguay, together with slave raiding wars in Africa and imperial wars in Africa, Asia, and the South Pacific, where we can't even begin to estimate the death tolls. Also, while it is indisputably true that the Second World War was the most destructive war in history in terms of the absolute number of uh, corpses that it created, it's not so clear that it was the most destructive event in, as a proportion of the population of the world at the time. Here I've uh, adapted figures from a man uh, named Matthew White who calls himself an atrocitologist. Uh, and it comes from his list of the 100 worst things that people have ever done to each other uh, from the year uh, 500, uh, 500 BC to the, uh, to the present. I've plotted them again on a logarithmic scale, but I've um, divided them by the proportion of the, as a, expressed them as a proportion of the population of the world at the time. And as you can see, history's worst atrocities are pretty evenly sprinkled over 2,500 years of human history. Uh, world War II only comes in at ninth place, and World War I doesn't even make the top 10. Now, there is a funneling down of the data cloud as you get closer to the present. Presumably, this does not mean that in ancient times they only committed really big atrocities, and more recently, we've also been committing medium-sized and small-sized atrocities. But it's much more likely to be an artifact of the historical record, namely, the closer you get to the present, the more likely it is that a smaller atrocity would have been written down and uh, become uh, aware to us uh, centuries later. I'm going to zoom in on the uh, last half millennium of uh, history and in, zoom in on a particular category of war called Great Power War, using a data set from Jack Levy. These are wars that embroil the 800-pound guerrillas of the day, the states and empires that can project military force outside their own borders, 
and whose wars, first of all, uh, are uh, unlikely to have been missed by any of the historians of the day, and second of all, account for a majority of deaths from all wars combined. So here we have the proportion of years from 1500 to the present that the great powers fought each other in what we would today call world wars. And it shows that several hundred years ago, the great powers were pretty much always at war with each other. That's just what great powers did. They fought wars with other great powers. But more recently, they have hardly uh, ever been at war with each other. This graph shows the duration of wars involving a great power on at least one side. Uh, and it shows that wars have gotten uh, shorter. History used to have things like the 30 Years' War and the 80 Years' War. The 20th century had the Six-Day War. Uh, this graph shows that over the last 500 years, the great powers have been uh, fighting wars uh, less often. They've been uh, picking fights that uh, started a war less and less frequently. There was, however, one trend that went in the opposite direction through most of this period. That is the deadliness of wars involving a great power. Once a great power did start a war, how many people was it able to kill per country per year? And that went up for most of this period. Wars, even though they were less common and shorter, were more deadly, until the climax of World War II, after which even that curve does a U-turn. And for the last uh, two-thirds of a century, we've been living through an era in which wars have become less frequent, shorter, and less deadly all at the same time. Uh, if you combine those three uh, measures and simply aggregate number of deaths per year in wars involving a great power, you get a, a kind of a zigzaggy line, but one where the lowest point in 500 years was the last quarter of the 20th century, uh, namely this figure over here. Well, we can zoom in on the last century, for which the data are richer still, and look at all wars, uh, not just those involving a great power, and what we see is two unmistakable spikes of uh, bloodshed centered around the uh, two world wars. But since then, the line uh, kind of falls to the floor and hugs the ground, showing that there has not been a recurrence, that World War II is something closer to a last gasp than a harbinger of things to come. This is the era that has been called the long peace. The fact that since 1946, there's been a historically unprecedented decline in interstate war, wars with a government on each side. In fact, the most interesting statistic from this period is zero. There were zero wars between the two greatest powers of them all, the United States and the Soviet Union. Contrary, by the way, to almost every expert prediction that uh, World War III between them was inevitable. No nuclear weapon has been used since Nagasaki, again, contrary to all the predictions that we grew up with that uh, thermonuclear world war and the end of civilization was inevitable. There have been no wars between any two great powers since the end of the Korean War in 1953. No wars between any two Western European countries since World War II, a fact that we almost take for granted nowadays. Like, who would ever expect, say, France and Germany to fight a war? But needless to say, this is a historically unusual state of affairs. Prior to 1945, Western European countries alone started two new wars a year for 600 years. As of 1945, that fell to zero. 
And there have been no wars between developed countries. The 40 countries with the highest GDPs have not fought a war since World War II. Again, we're apt to take that for granted. Of course, wars are things that take place among uh, poor, nasty countries in undeveloped parts of the world. But this is a historically new phenomenon. It used to be the uh, richest, most developed countries that were constantly at each other's throats. And because they were rich, they could afford big destructive armies and do a lot of damage. Well, what about genocide? It's sometimes said that more people in the 20th century died from uh, genocide than from war. And in fact, one often reads that the 20th century was the age of genocide. Um, however, historians of genocide unanimously deny this claim. Uh, I will just give you an example of one of these histories from uh, Frank Chalk and Kurt Jonason, whose uh, first paragraph in the book begins as follows. Genocide has been practiced in all regions of the world and during all periods in history. We know that in ancient times, empires have disappeared and that cities were destroyed, but we do not know what happened to the bulk of the populations involved in these events. Their fate was simply too unimportant. When they were mentioned at all, they were usually lumped together with the herds of oxen, sheep, and other livestock. Looking at the available evidence from antiquity, one might develop a hypothesis that most wars at that time were genocidal in character. What do they have in mind? Well, if you take the uh, Bible seriously, there is a, a genocide every few pages, the Amalekites, Amorites, Canaanites, Hivites, and so on. Uh, most of those were probably fictitious in their details, although they, they recorded a common practice. More historically accurate was the uh, massacre of, uh, in Melos by the Athenians, in uh, Carthage by the Romans, the Mongol invasions, the Crusades, the European wars of religion, and many events in the colonization of the Americas, Africa, and Australia. Well, uh, what was the more recent trajectory of genocide in the century for which we have better data, namely the 20th century? Well, here's a, uh, and is it true, as one often reads, that the recent genocides in Bosnia and Rwanda mean that nothing has changed, that the world has learned no lessons from the Holocaust? Well, that uh, is most definitely not true. It's hard to say that there's anything positive about this graph that shows the uh, number of people killed in genocides uh, per year. Uh, it does show that there was a peak in the uh, 1940s with the uh, Holocaust and the Soviet and Japanese genocides, but the trajectory since then has been uh, bumpily uh, downward, even with the uh, bumps corresponding to the Rwanda and Bosnian genocides. Well, what about the rest of the world? Uh, in a process called the New Peace, the Long Peace seems to be spreading to the rest of the globe. As I mentioned, since 1946, there have been fewer interstate wars, country against country. There have, though, to be sure, been, has, there been, has been an increase in the number of civil wars. As newly independent states with inept governments defended themselves against insurgent movements, with both sides armed, financed, and egged on by the Cold War superpowers. Uh, but after the Cold War, the number of civil wars declined too. Let me just show you these trends graphically in a stacked layer graph. This is a graph where the thickness of each wedge corresponds to the, in this case, to the number of wars in each of four categories. The height of the entire stack gives the total of wars of all categories combined. Here we see the number of colonial wars, which uh, dwindled to zero as European empires gave up their overseas uh, colonies. 
Here we have the number of interstate wars, uh, country against country, which, as I have mentioned, has uh, been dwindling over the years. Here we see the uh, increase in the number of civil wars, both pure civil wars uh, fought within one country and internationalized civil wars, that is, a civil war where some third party butts in, usually on the side of the government. And it shows that in the 1970s, there was a big increase in the number of civil wars, but that, which was then followed by a substantial decrease uh, since 1990. The question is, which wars kill more people, the old-fashioned interstate wars uh, or the uh, more recent civil wars? And this graph uh, gives us the answer. Here we have the rate of death from interstate wars, country against country, for each decade from the 1950s to the 2000s. And it shows that, uh, as I've mentioned before, fewer and fewer people are killed in wars between states. Here we have the rate of death in internationalized civil wars and internal civil wars, which show that even though there was an increase in the uh, 1970s and 1980s, it came nowhere near meeting the rate of death from uh, wars of one country against another country. If we now combine these two figures, how many wars were there, how many people were killed per war year, we get the following uh, picture. Again, a stacked layer graph. Here we have the rate of death from colonial wars from interstate wars with spikes corresponding to the uh, era of the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Iran-Iraq War. Here we have the rate of death from civil wars and from internationalized civil wars. If you look at the entire stack, it follows a spiky and bumpy, but unmistakably downward trajectory. And here we are in the 21st century, even with the uh, various wars that continue to smolder, the total rate of death is a fraction of what it was in earlier decades. What were the immediate causes of the long peace and the new peace? Well, um, credit has to go to Immanuel Kant, who in his essay, Perpetual Peace, more than 200 years ago, tossed out three hypotheses that all have fared pretty well. Uh, Kant argued that democracy, trade, and an international community would all disincentivize leaders from dragging their countries into war. More recently, the political scientists Bruce Russett and John O'Neill have tested Kant's hypotheses quantitatively in a large data set of militarized disputes and argue that he got it right three out of three times. That all three of these factors increased in the second half of the 20th century, and all of them are statistical predictors of peace uh, in, uh, farther down the line, holding constant uh, every other variable you could think of. Finally, the sixth decline of violence I call the rights revolutions. Um, uh, this is, involves the targeting of violence directed against uh, vulnerable sectors of the population, such as African Americans and other racial minorities, women, children, homosexuals, and animals. The first of these, the civil rights revolution, uh, brought an end to the American practice of lynching uh, in the late uh, 19th century, uh, 150 African Americans were lynched every year. That's uh, three a week. Uh, by the 1950s, that had fallen to zero. Uh, the closest equivalent, hate crime murders of blacks, were never very plentiful in the first place, taking pl uh, place at a rate of about five per year when statistics were first kept, but that has fallen to about one per year. Non-lethal hate crimes against blacks in the United States, such as intimidation and assault, have been in decline. And the kind of racist attitudes that uh, licensed 
violent attacks on uh, African Americans have been in uh, decline. This graph shows the results of uh, two questions on opinion polls that have been asked at various times over the decades since 1940. Should, do you believe, these are asked of white Americans, do you believe that black and white students should go to separate schools? And if a black family moved in next door, would you move out? The uh, rates have fallen into the single digits, which is the range of crank opinion, and the questions are no longer even included on uh, modern opinion surveys. Uh, this probably is not just an American phenomenon, but a worldwide one, and here's just one index of that. The uh, red line shows since 1950 the number of countries that have laws on their books that discriminate against their ethnic minorities, and as you can see, that has been in decline. The blue line shows the number of countries with policies of uh, affirmative action or remedial discrimination on their books, that is, laws that are designed to give a leg up to previously oppressed or discriminated minorities. Uh, and the crossing of the curves shows that recently more countries have laws that try to favor their uh, re uh, repressed minorities than that discriminate against them. The women's rights revolution has uh, brought about an 80% decrease in the rate of rape since its peak in the 1970s. These are American statistics, but a similar thing has happened in Britain. Uh, an equally dramatic decline in rates of domestic violence. Uh, strong declines in the most extreme and most quantifiable form of domestic violence of all, namely uxoricide, the murder of uh, female partners, and mariticide, the murder of male domestic partners. In fact, as you can see, the decline has been even more dramatic for male victims than for female victims. The women's movement has been very, very good for husbands. Uh, the children's rights revolution has seen a decline in the use of corporal punishment, uh, in many parts of Europe, uh, corporal punishment, is, uh, that is the, the uh, beating of or whipping of children in schools, is considered a human rights violation and is uh, abolished altogether. The United States uh, here, as elsewhere, is a bit of a laggard in this trend, but even in the United States, the number of uh, states that allow their schools to um, paddle or strap students has been in steady decline. Approval of spanking or smacking by parents has been in uh, decline in every country in which it's been measured. Again, in many parts of Europe, it is outlawed altogether. Rates of child abuse, both physical and sexual, have been in decline since statistics were first kept. And rates of violence in school, such as uh, fighting and bullying, have been in decline. The gay rights revolution has seen an increase in the number of states that have decriminalized homosexuality, both uh, nation states worldwide and American states, which now stands at 100%. Uh, Anti-gay attitudes have been in steady decline, such as whether when people, when asked uh, whether they agree that homosexuality is morally wrong or that uh, gay people should be denied equal rights. And uh, hate crime of intimidation, gay bashing, has been in decline, at least in the United States. Finally, the animal rights revolution has seen a decline in hunting, an increase in vegetarianism, both in the UK and the US, and a dramatic decrease in the number of motion pictures in which animals were harmed. Uh, well, this then raises the question, why has violence declined on so many scales of time and magnitude? One possibility is that human nature itself has changed and that somehow our inclinations toward violence have literally been bred out of us. Well, I think this is unlikely for a number of reasons. One of them is that we still observe violence in our children. The most violent stage of life is two. 
uh, during which uh, almost half children of uh, toddlers kick, bite, and, and hit. And uh, play fighting in boys is one of the most robust uh, uh, cross-cultural universals. Uh, grown-up boys and some grown-up girls continue to take enormous pleasure in uh, witnessing vicarious violence, such as murder mysteries, Greek tragedies, Shakespearean dramas, video games, hockey, <laughs> and uh, movies starring a certain ex-governor of California. Uh, and then there are homicidal fantasies. Um, have you ever fantasized about killing someone? Uh, don't raise your hands. Uh, believe it or not, social psychologists have asked this question in samples of college students, a, a markedly nonviolent population, and have found that about 15% of women and a third of men frequently fantasize about killing people, and about 60% of women and three-quarters of men at least uh, occasionally uh, fantasize about killing people. What do these numbers say about human nature? They, they tell us that 25% of men are liars. A uh, more likely possibility is that human nature is uh, and always has been complex and it has always comprised inclinations toward violence and inclinations that counteract them, what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature, and that what's changed over history is that circumstances have increasingly favored our peaceable inclinations, the peaceful side of human nature. What are the motives for violence? I don't think there is any such thing as a, uh, an aggressive instinct. I think there are uh, distinct reasons that people harm one another. One of them is just sheer practical exploitation, the uh, elimination of a human being who happens to be an obstacle on the path to something that you want, resulting in rape, plunder, conquest, and uh, killing rivals. There's a very different motive of dominance, the urge among individuals to climb the pecking order and become alpha male, and a corresponding urge among groups for supremacy, uh, either ethnic, racial, national, or religious. There's revenge or moralistic violence, the, the conviction that if someone commits some harm, then they ought to be uh, punished with violence, resulting in vendettas, rough justice, and cruel punishments. And then there are utopian ideologies, militant religions, nationalism, Nazism, and communism, which often unleash uh, vast amounts of violence by a kind of pernicious cost-benefit analysis. If you have a shared belief system that holds out the prospect of a utopia, a world that will be infinitely good forever, well, if the ends are infinitely good, then the means can be as violent as you want, and you're always doing more harm than good in the long run, which is infinite. And if, uh, let's say, you announce your vision of uh, heaven on earth, and there are some people who just don't buy it. They just don't get with the program. They're the only thing standing in the way of a world that will be infinitely good forever. Well, how dangerous are they, according to this belief system? Well, they are infinitely dangerous, and uh, they deserve uh, any amount of violence. As in the old uh, communist saying, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, uh, ignoring the fact that human beings are not eggs, and uh, resulting in, paradoxically, the, the uh, recurring finding that the worst outbreaks of violence in human history have often been motivated by idealistic, moralistic uh, belief systems. Well, that all sounds pretty depressing. What does uh, our brain give us on the other side to counteract these impulses? 
their self-control, the ability to anticipate the consequences of behavior and inhibit violent impulses, which we have reason to believe is uh, a, one of the functions of the prefrontal cortex. There's uh, the capacity for empathy, the ability to feel others' pain. There's the moral sense, particularly a set of norms and taboos governing uh, fairness. And there's reason, cognitive processes that allow us to engage in objective, detached analysis and problem solving. Then the, uh, the last question then is how do we bring the history back together with the psychology? What has changed over the course of history that increasingly brings out our better angels and stays our hands before they can commit acts of bloodshed? One possibility is that Hobbes got it right when he called for a leviathan, a state and judicial system with a monopoly on the legitimate use of force which can lower rates of violence, first of all, by neutralizing the incentive for exploitative attack, by uh, imposing penalties on aggressors that cancel out their anticipated gain. Well, that can calm everyone down because not only are you uh, disincentivized from committing acts of violence, but you know that your neighbors and enemies are also. So that reduces the temptation to engage in a preemptive attack, to do it to them before they do it to you. It reduces the need to prove your uh, mettle by adopting a belligerent macho stance to prove that you're uh, capable of withstanding an attack. And it, of course, it reduces the need for vengeance after the fact if you outsource your revenge to a disinterested third party. That has the additional advantage of circumventing the self-serving biases that social psychologists have shown that humans are prone to. That is, in any dispute, both sides predictably believe that their own acts of aggression are justified retaliation after the fact, whereas the other guy's acts of aggression are naked attacks out of the blue. When you have both sides deluded by these self-serving biases, you can have endless cycles of vendetta and feuding, which a disinterested third party can nip in the bud. Uh, some historical evidence comes from the pacifying and civilizing effects of states that I have uh, uh, mentioned uh, throughout the talk, and the fact that you can watch this movie in reverse when government breaks down and uh, areas revert to a state of anarchy, and they are almost always accompanied by increases in the rates of violence, such as the American Wild West, where if uh, any of you watch the old cowboy movies, you're familiar with the cliche, the nearest sheriff is 90 miles away, so you have to defend yourself with your uh, six-shooter. Failed states, collapsed empires, and contraband economies, areas in which goods such as drugs or uh, minerals are uh, traded illegally uh, by mafias and street gangs and warlords who can't avail themselves of the dispute apparatus of the state. If you're uh, a uh, crack dealer and you feel you've been cheated in a deal, you can't uh, press a lawsuit. Uh, if the other guy threatens you, you can't uh, dial the police for protection. Your only source of protection is the credible threat of violence. Uh, a second possibility is the Enlightenment doctrine of uh, gentle commerce. There's a uh, statue in the city of uh, one of the men who are responsible uh, for this idea. Uh, the idea is that plunder is a zero-sum game. The uh, aggressor's gain is the victim's loss, but trade is a positive-sum game, one in which everybody wins. And as, over the course of history, improvements in technology have allowed goods and ideas to be traded over longer distances among larger groups of people and at lower cost, it becomes cheaper to buy things than to steal them, 
and other people become more valuable to you alive than dead. Um, some historical evidence comes from a number of statistical analyses showing that countries with open economies and a greater dependence on international trade get embroiled in fewer wars, are riven by fewer civil wars, and host fewer genocides. A third hypothesis is the expanding circle. Uh, that's the term given to it by the philosopher Peter Singer, but the idea goes back to Charles Darwin. Namely, humans seem to be equipped with a capacity for empathy. Unfortunately, by default, we only deploy that capacity when it comes to uh, our uh, close friends, our um, blood relatives, and cute little baby animals. But over the course of history, the circle of empathy has expanded to embrace the village, the clan, the tribe, the nation, other races, both sexes, children, and perhaps eventually other species. Well, this raises the question of what expanded the circle, and it's plausible that the technologies of cosmopolitanism deserve the credit. Uh, the increase in affordable travel, history, consumption of literature, drama, and journalism. And indeed, there's some experimental evidence behind it, namely that if um, you expose people to other people's experience by having them read or listen to first-person accounts of what it's like to be that person, then the uh, audience becomes more sympathetic to that individual and also more sympathetic to the category of people that uh, that individual represents. Some, uh, a bit of historical evidence is that Eras of humanitarian reform and liberalization are often preceded by new technologies for spreading ideas and sharing experiences. In the 18th century, as I've mentioned, the humanitarian revolution was preceded by the so-called Republic of Letters, the expansion of written discourse. In the 20th century, the long peace and the rights revolutions took place in the era of Marshall McLuhan's so-called electronic global village, the rise of television and uh, um, satellite uh, transmission. The 21st century, the two great liberalizations, namely the color revolutions in the Arab Spring, have, uh, as many commentators have pointed out, were facilitated by the rise of the internet and social media. Finally, there's the escalator of reason, the possibility that the historical expansion of literacy, education, and public discourse have, in general, encouraged people to think more abstractly and more universally. They rise above their parochial vantage point, which makes it harder to privilege your own interests just because you're you and someone else isn't. Uh, people can step back and recognize the futility of cycles of violence and increasingly see violence as a problem to be solved rather than as a contest to be won. Some historical evidence comes from the little appreciated fact that abstract reasoning abilities, as measured by uh, IQ and other uh, tests, have increased over the course of the 20th century. The so-called uh, Flynn effect, uh, shown in this graph, by which IQ scores have risen by about three points per decade throughout the 20th century. Combined with studies uh, by, uh, by your own Ian Deary and others, that people and societies with higher levels of education and measured intelligence on average, commit fewer violent crimes, cooperate more in experimental games, have more classically liberal attitudes, such as opposition to xenophobia, homophobia, uh, and racism, and uh, uh, measured society-wide are more receptive to democracy 10 years down the line, holding all other uh, confounding factors constant. Well, the final question that I will address is why, if there are these four forces, 
uh, that have brought violence down, why should they be aligned and push in the same direction? Uh, now, I don't believe that there is any mystical arc of history or uh, historical dialectic or um, omega point of perfect peace and cooperation. Uh, rather, I think that the historical forces have been aligned in this direction because violence is what game theorists call a social dilemma. Namely, it's always tempting to an aggressor to exploit a victim, but the harm done to the victim is much greater than the gain that accrues to the aggressor. Since over the long term, aggressors can become victims and vice versa, everyone would objectively be better off if everyone agreed to uh, abjure violence. The dilemma is, how do you get the other guy to refrain from violence at the same time as you do? Because if you beat your swords into plowshares, but the other guy keeps his swords as swords, uh, then you can find yourself uh, at the wrong end of, a, of an invading army, for example. It's not uh, implausible to think that over the course of history, human experience and human ingenuity have gradually chipped away at this problem, just like we have gradually chipped away at other scourges of the human condition, like pestilence and hunger. And what the four pacifying forces have in common is that all of them increase the material, the emotional, or the cognitive incentives of all parties to avoid violence simultaneously. Well, regardless of what the best explanation of the decline of violence turns out to be, I think that its implications are uh, profound. For one thing, it calls for a reorientation of our efforts toward violence reduction from a moralistic mindset to an empirical mindset. That is, instead of just lamenting why is there war, perhaps a better question is why is there peace? Not just what are we doing wrong, but what have we been doing right? Because we have been doing something right, and it seems to me to be quite important to try to figure out what exactly it is. Also, the decline of violence calls for a reassessment of modernity, of the centuries-long uh, trend that has eroded family and tribe and tradition and religion, and given way to individual rights and cosmopolitanism and reason and science. Now, everyone uh, has to acknowledge that modernity has brought us many gifts, longer and healthier lives, less ignorance and superstition, richer experiences, but there's always been a current of nostalgia and romanticism that has uh, used violence to question the price. Is it worth it if we have to live in the shadow of terrorism, genocide, world wars, and nuclear weapons? However, if despite impressions, the long-term trend, though halting and incomplete, is that violence of all kinds is decreasing, I think that that calls for a rehabilitation of the ideals of modernity and progress. And it's a cause for gratitude for the institutions of civilization and enlightenment that have made it possible. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Pinker. To be sure, not everyone here will agree on the details of the proposed explanations of the phenomena, but we've had a, had a spellbinding case, I think, de portraying the decline in violence across historic times and the need to explain that decline. 
as you said in your book. <laughs> Careful. If that's not progress, I don't know what is. Professor Pinker will now be taking questions, and I believe there are two roving microphones which our servitors have to hand. If anybody on the balcony would like to ask a question, then you're going to have to come down to the ground floor to do so. And it's very important if you do ask a question that you wait until you get a microphone. So um, I'm going to hand over now to Professor Pinker to field questions if people have got them. So please raise a hand if you'd like to ask one. Um, I can hear. I don't think anyone else can. <laughs> Something happened. Oops. Keep going. Uh, it's got light on. Um, it, that's a very encouraging picture that you paint. I have a couple of brief questions. One is uh, when you... Um, talk about the, the, the role of uh, literacy and so on in education, reducing superstition and ignorance. I think I would have been very interested to see what you had to say about the relationship to fear, the reduction of fear as part as a component of this. And the second thing is I am acutely aware that you make no reference whatsoever to self-violence as part of the picture of violence. What has been happening most noticeably, obviously, to instances of suicide, but you know, other forms in which people uh, attack themselves. It would be a very interesting comparable pattern. Yes. Um, so you're, you're right that um, often uh, the emotion of fear does not track the statistics of actual risk. Uh, and cognitive psychologists have spent uh, a lot of time, Daniel Kahneman being one of the most famous of them, uh, in uh, exploring the psychology of fear. Uh, fear tends to be driven, needless to say, not by statistics on crime, but by uh, vivid, imaginable events. And as the media become uh, more effective at reporting them, our sense of danger uh, increases, even if the, as the likelihood of any of us becoming a victim of crime can, uh, can decrease. Uh, if you combine media coverage with the explicit tactic to generate fear, you can get some uh, uh, dramatic events that cause massive waves of fear, even though the risk to an individual is trifling. And of course, we have names for those, uh, those strat that strategy. We call it terrorism. Uh, as the word terror itself makes clear, terrorism is a way of leveraging a very small amount of violence to produce a massive amount of fear by targeting innocent victims as they uh, lead their lives for no apparent purpose other than generating publicity. I think that rampage killings, such as the uh, school shootings uh, that have taken place you know, famously in the United States but, uh, but elsewhere, are also ways of, uh, by which um, desperate losers can uh, become a somebody uh, at, um, uh, in a, one of the few ways that are guaranteed to achieve fame, namely kill innocent people. Uh, so even though uh, the likelihood of dying in a rampage shooting or a terrorist act is dwarfed by just about any other category of violence uh, or category of death, such as collision with a deer on the highway. Uh, nonetheless, our subjective sense of fear 
uh, is, uh, can be manipulated by these highly newsworthy events. Uh, the other question is on uh, self-harm, like uh, suicide. There, um, we don't have statistics that go back very far because suicide was uh, often a shameful act. It was concealed. Uh, it was uh, distorted. Uh, so I don't know, of if, say, if there were higher rates of suicide in the Middle Ages than there, there are today. Uh, since the 80s, rates of suicide have gone down, but I don't know of data, good data from before the, uh, the 80s. Suicide is also a, a different category because it's, the, uh, it's a, you know, by definition, a voluntary act. So it's uh, not the, even though obviously every suicide is, is deplorable, it is, uh, I think, a different category than forms of violence where one person uh, inflicts harm on uh, someone else who didn't ask for it. Okay, next question. Thank you. Um, over the last half century or so, anthropologists have spent a lot of time studying stateless societies, both in the modern period and in the past. And they've come to the conclusion that many, if not most, of these societies have informal sets of norms and rituals that actually do a fairly good job of limiting violence within these societies, whether it's Africa in the early part of the 20th century or Viking Age Iceland so that they were not necessarily anarchic. If this is true, does it at all affect or make less likely the argument that a strong centralized state is required to limit internal violence? Yeah, I, well, I agree with the, the first part of the, the first observation, namely that pretty much all societies have forms of uh, conflict resolution, uh, particularly within their own societies. But um, what's not so clear is that whether uh, is how effective they are if you count bodies or other forms of harm. That uh, and one can be misled if one doesn't uh, uh, actually tot up the, the number of bodies because in a small society, a small number of deaths can translate to a massive rate of violence if projected to a, 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 a much larger society. Uh, together with the fact that those forms of conflict re uh, resolution within a village, for example, don't do you any good in conflicts between villages or between tribes. In every um, non-state, well, I shouldn't say in every, because I plotted a, a range of statistics that include zero at the low end, but on average, uh, non-state societies, even with their conflict resolution measures, which they do have, still suffer rates of, of, uh, of violence that are far higher than those of modern societies. So I think those, the, the, the methods exist, but they don't work as well as modern ones do. It's not working. Um, it's a hypothetical question. Um, in a world of decreasing resources, if uh, the resource scarcity was really start to start to bite and half of Bangladesh is underwater, 200 million people need relocating, uh, but they can't re relocate to the coastal areas of the, the modern world because that's underwater too. Do you think those problems might be addressed in a, um, in a globally cooperative, even-handed and fair-minded manner, or is violence, anarchy, and mayhem likely to result as it has in previous centuries? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the answer is no one knows, but um, I don't think it is uh, inevitable that there will be resource shortages that will lead to large-scale violence, although, of course, no sane person could rule that out. One thing, it's not so clear that there are going to be uh, resource shortages, that um, 
uh, for reasons that are you know, well known among economists. As resources get scarcer, they become more expensive, people conserve, conserve they find substitutes. And at least theoretically, there is no reason there should be any uh, foreseeable resource shortages, even with water, where in theory you could have desalination uh, fed by renewable energy that, at least on paper, uh, could suffice to, uh, to uh, alleviate resource shortages. Also, it's, the other thing that's not clear is whether resource shortages lead to organized violence. There are actually very few recent wars uh, that, that are especially big ones that can really be tied to contests over uh, dwindling physical resources. Uh, most big wars are not. They're fought over fear and revenge and ideology and glory and, and all kinds of other intangible factors. And there are cases where there's quite a bit of human misery that, uh, due to droughts uh, that don't lead to wars. I mean, just take one ex famous example. The, um, during the Depression in the United States, the Great American Dust Bowl, the massive uh, drought, uh, led to a lot of uh, misery, but there was no American Civil War. Uh, and when there was an American Civil War, it wasn't over resource shortages, over something completely different. Statistical studies that try to measure climate stress and resource shortages at time one and see if they correlate with an elevated rate of civil war at time two. Um, different studies go in different directions, but I think most of them show a very tenuous connection, if any. And this is not, most definitely, a reason to be complacent about climate change, climate stress, uh, or re resource shortages where they exist, because they will undoubtedly cause a great deal of human suffering. Whether that suffering will take the form of army against army is uh, not automatic. So maybe, but not necessarily. OK, thank you. On this side? Um, going back to the state centrality, as it's clear from um, your book and your thesis, um, in legal philosophy and, and political theory, we witness nowadays the demise of the state, especially on the uh, global level. We see that the states are losing their um, centrality when it comes to be the lawmakers and so forth, whereas, for instance, private powers or other kinds of institutions are taking up that role. Uh, some people say we need a some sort of globalized order instead, so I'm thinking about the UN model, of course, like perhaps slightly modified. Um, some people say just they argue we don't need such globalized order, we, had rather, we are rather going towards a horizontal model in which, you know, interstate uh, conflicts and dynamics can be um, uh, put together. Uh, do you have any uh, specific take on that? Do you think we are going towards uh, globalized order, or is there anything? Um... Yeah. Well, when it comes to uh, individual crime, then there, there has not been any uh, decline in the state. I mean, if your house gets broken into, you don't call up Brussels and the European Union. You still call the local police. So at, at that level, I think the, uh, the state is not uh, giving way. But you're right that certainly the, the traditional nation state as, the, uh, as, as an autonomous entity that pursues its own interests in an anarchic community of other nation states also pursuing their own interests has been in decline. Uh, I think there, uh, or, or at least has been given way to a parallel structure of uh, intergovernmental organizations and um, uh, superordinate bodies like the European Union, the UN, and various treaty and uh, regulation organizations. That has increased. 
there is reason to, to think that um, they, that does decrease the uh, likelihood of armed conflict. Uh, and um, it probably, I suspect that it will increase. There, there are many uh, holdouts like the United States and uh, Russia and China, but uh, smaller countries increasingly have been ceding some amount of sovereignty to international treaties and international organizations. In general, I think this is a likely to increase, and in general, I think this is a, a, a good thing for, for peace. Again, but as a separate issue from crime and, and individual violence. Okay, I think we have time for uh, perhaps two more questions, so penultimate. Um, so, I, as uh, I can see that uh, most of the uh, violence you've listed has decreased. And, yeah, sorry. Uh, I was surprised to find that the um, school abuse uh, is still a little bit high uh, population. And I was wondering why is that, and besides, uh, as it has decreased a little. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't uh, hear the, uh, the, the, the substance of the question. Why, what okay, has... the first is why is the school abuse rate is still a little relative high? Why do I use, I'm sorry. I'm so just... you're saying school abuse? Oh, school abuse? Yes. You mean what has caused the decline? Because uh, the decline is not really very ob obvious. And the other one is, uh, are we doing something to uh, reduce this school abuse rate in the world or in the U.S.? So uh, uh, is the question, what has been the driver of the decline in, in uh, violence uh, yes. in schools? Yes. I think it's, um, first, it, partly it's the expanding circle extending to children that uh, none of us would tolerate being uh, manhandled or abused or slapped in, uh, at work as adults, but it used to be okay for kids to undergo it. It was just considered part of childhood, uh, and no one really questioned whether uh, what it's like to be a child who's a victim of uh, petty crime or, or uh, abuse or bullying. With the expansion, I think, of, of empathy to include other more and more sentient creatures, we put ourselves in the shoes of children and we say, hey, if we don't tolerate it, why should it be okay for kids? Uh, and um, uh, more proximately, uh, teachers and um, parents and school boards have been sensitized to the problem of uh, bullying and kids victimizing other kids and have intervened. I mean, it doesn't really take that much for a big, strong grown-up to get between two squabbling kids if the grown-up believes that those kids shouldn't be uh, beating, beating each other up. Uh, but in an era in which you know, boys will be boys, if we don't allow kids to be bullied, then our boys will grow up to be you know, sissies and wimps and Nancy boys. Uh, then parents, uh, adults didn't intervene. Now they, now they do intervene. So I think that's the immediate, the immediate cause. Okay, so um, fourth row from the back, third in is the final question. You, sir. Um, thank you very much. Um, my question going, is going back to the uh, motivations for violence, uh, which we had talked about were um, domination and exploitation particularly. It's just the two of these can also be manifested in um, nonviolent uh, methods such as exploitative trade relations um, or asymmetries of political power in democratic institutions, for instance, and um, exploitative trade of developing nations and other such instances that still pervade. Uh, my question is, um, is it true that it is really a better, uh, the better, better nature of our angels that are getting the best of us 
us, to quote the title? Or is it just that we have found subtler and um, um, less violent, albeit more um, um, pernicious ways of articulating these same natures which, uh, or, uh, or in which the same asymmetries of power can come into play? Yeah. Um, there, uh, one thing, I, I think if, if there are asymmetries of power that are manifested um, economically rather than by violence, that itself is a good thing, that it's, even if you're cheating someone in a deal, it's better than killing them. So even if that were the trade-off, I think it would be a beneficial advance. But it's not so clear that there has been an increase in ec economic uh, exploitation. Uh, if you look at um, economic relations among countries in uh, decades, to say nothing of centuries before the, pre the uh, present, it's not as if uh, there was a lot of um, you know, fair-minded exchange going on in the past from which we now suffer from a decline. I mean, I'll just mention, you know, opium wars would be, you know, pretty obvious 19th century example. And, um, you know, I don't see any evidence that it's worse now than it was in the past. And, of course, data show that uh, worldwide people on average uh, worldwide are more affluent uh, than, than they used to be. Uh, and that it's countries that are most open to global trade that are uh, the, the most affluent among them. And so, on average, trade couldn't be so exploitative that countries that engage in it end up worse off if they end up better off. And even if they did, it's better than being you know, invaded and annihilated. That's a very positive note to end on, I think. <laughs> Thank you all very much for your attention and your questions. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for questions this evening. Two final items of business, books and thanks. On the subject of books, there are some books over there. And Professor Pinker will be available to sign copies of his book. Those who would like him to sign a copy uh, should form a queue paradoxically to my right. And on the subject of books. Those who don't want to have a book signed are going to be free to leave in just a moment. So the final item of business is a vote of thanks. I'd like to invite Professor Sir Timothy O'Shea to come forward to move our vote of thanks. Um, as chairman of the Gifford Committee, it's just uh, an enormous uh, pleasure uh, to propose a vote of thanks to Professor Stephen Pinker. As we were coming down to the hall, Steve observed to me uh, that the Edinburgh Gifford Lectures set, set an extremely high bar. Um, it is a high bar. We want a, a distinguished public intellectual. Uh, we want some uh, natural theology. And I re remember when we were considering inviting Noam Chomsky, we debated uh, whether or not he was a natural theologian, and we felt he met that bar, and you, you clearly do also. And, and also, this being Edinburgh, <coughs> we, we'd like a bit of Edinburgh. And we had, a, we had some fabulous Edinburgh, good, good reference to the Enlightenment thinkers, uh, nice reference to Charles Darwin, wonderful reference to Ian Deary. Um, so the, we, we got the Edinburgh there. And you are a natural theologian in, in, in that what was very clear through the, through the lecture was tremendous moral purpose. Uh, that the, mor the moral side of the argument was, was very, very clear. And then as a public intellectual, I think this was absolutely outstanding. And I would signal, I would particularly signal this to uh, PhD students in the audience. Um, the, one of the key things was the clarity of language. I mean, I mean, Steve, Steve is is known for taking on extremely difficult uh, ideas, domains like language, um, 
like this particular domain. But the language was, it was, we had simple, short English sentences. When you're writing your PhD, please remember you can be one of the most distinguished people on the planets and you can still use short sentences with single verbs. <coughs> the second was, and I think it is absolutely vital, particularly dealing with very dark and demanding matters, the, the use of humor. The humor carried us along. Uh, there were a lot of light touches. That was very, very helpful. Uh, uh, but then overwhelmingly, and you know, in Edinburgh's, University of Edinburgh's history as an enlightenment institution, the very careful use of evidence. Everything you said was evidenced. Uh, for me, this has been one of the most superb Gifford lectures I have uh, had the privilege to hear. Uh, and it is just an enormous pleasure uh, to invite the audience to thank you again. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.